Boy, you are going to be excited for this one today. We have Jim McKnight, entrepreneurship professor and pre-law advisor at Butler University. He has lots to share today. He's a very interesting guy who's had a lot of different experience, uh, like as a teacher, as a CPA, as a CFO, growing three different businesses. Uh, it, was, it was a good interview. We, we talked to him. He came, he met us on a Saturday morning and kind of we, we were very thankful for the time he gave us, and it was, it was a good interview. He, he starts out kind of introducing himself. Uh, he goes into his first big entrepreneurship curveball and kind of what he did to go around that. Um, he goes into, he, he touched a lot on networking and the different benefits of networking and how it can get you out of your next funk, um, how you can use it to kind of increase your business acumen and IQ. He, he really talks about different unique strategies in terms of expanding your network and, and growing your contacts. Slager, I know you enjoyed the interview. I love your excitement level. Let's start there. That got me like, not that I wasn't awake, but now, sir, you do have my attention. Good. Um, I do. Like goal. Tim said, and with our most unbiased objective opinion, one of the best interviews I think we've had. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, after uh, Tim ran through a couple topics, we're going to go into what made uh, Jim successful in particular with one of his uh, business ventures. Um, also, we get into what motivated him to go back to teach as a college professor uh, in the business program there that he's also been a part of. And then the conversation gets, gets real. I, I, I know you remember, Colin. I mean, McKnight gives a very, very honest point of view on, on entrepreneurship. He, t he tells you about the, the bigger picture that not a lot of people see. Um, it's, it's, it's not all fun and games. You're, I mean, it's a game, but gives it to you straight. Yeah. You're going to have ups, you're going to have downs. He gives you kind of all sides of it. And it's really, it's really refreshing to hear because you need to know kind of the risks heading into anything. And he kind of, he sheds both lights on it and, he, and it was really insightful. I, I, I really enjoyed the interview. He, he goes into delegating to like different methods of leadership he used as a CFO, um, and kind of rebounding from mistakes in business and how. Mistakes are meant to happen in business, and it's not about the mistakes you make, but not making the, makes, the same mistake twice and being able to kind of learn from those mistakes. Yeah, those cool. uh, I think those are huge. And he, we just kind of let him do his thing, and he just keeps rolling with it. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a lot of good insights, a lot of good advice, and he does end on advice uh, to young people entering the business world with today's uh, business environment. Uh, social environment so he really kind of gets into that a little bit and provides again nothing but good knowledge and i think this episode is just nothing but mic drops he really kind of lets it go and throws out his side what he did that went well and what didn't go well so as tim said very excited for this episode excited for this uh this one to come out to you to you all finally uh tim you got anything else i just hope you all enjoy it i mean there's a lot of good info in there. Find the most relevant stuff to you and, and put it in your life. I mean, it's, it's a lot of applicable stuff, and I hope you enjoy the interview. It's good. Thank you again. Here we are with Jim McKnight. I'm Jim McKnight. I am an uh, instructor at Butler University in entrepreneurship. I'm also the pre-law advisor, so I help about 25 uh, high-achieving students get into law school each year. And I'm a recovering entrepreneur. <laughs> sold my last business in 2006 and now I work at Butler to, to hopefully give back a little bit and and have fun and uh, enter a, I call it practicing retirement I get my summers off and I get to work a few days a week with young people it's fantastic yeah I don't know. Get, get some good golf in I do play a little golf yeah yeah it's not my area I'm terrible at golf 
what uh, what kind of businesses? You said you sold your last in '06. What what other businesses did you run, and how those how those go? I started my career at Ernst and Young. Uh, I was a tax attorney, CPA, lawyer uh, by trade. So I, I had a pretty conventional educational background. I went. I was an accounting major, and I went to law school. But I had a pretty unconventional career in that I'd never practiced law. I, I did accounting work, mergers and acquisitions, and tax work for about eight years, and then I left the firm and became CFO, COO of three different companies. My first one was a, a trucking company, and I got that job to a friend of mine who was a banker. They were looking for a CFO, and I didn't know anything about big trucks. I'd never been inside of a big rig, uh, and I had a end up owning a third of a trucking company mm. and grew that from um, two locations and four million dollars to 18 locations and we were hauling over a billion gallons of jet fuel a year Jeez. nationwide wow. and uh, then the three partners each owned a third got into an argument and I got fired from that job which is really hard to do mm -hmm. uh, getting fired from a company you owned a third of uh, a lot of my neighbors would say Jim didn't you own that company yeah yeah, thanks for yeah. twisting that knife. <laughs> so at age um, 30, I took my first CFO job when I was 34, which is kind of a lesson that you don't have to rush into this. I, at age 38, I was unemployed, had a $100,000 legal bill, and I had a negative net worth of probably 300000 two young children under eight, and a wife who hadn't worked in five years. So... Um, I fortunately had a, a pretty good network that I'd built up over 10 or 12 years of being out. And a friend of mine hooked me up with John Ackerman at uh, Cardinal Private Equity, Cardinal Ventures back then. And they were looking to do a roll up uh, merge and acquisition of the ice industry, the packaged ice industry. And I was kind of the perfect guy to lead that for them because I had a trucking background and I had a mergers and acquisitions background. Now, who has that, right? Yeah. So they described Diverse. what they wanted to do. And I said, yeah, I think I'm your guy. And so we went out and they gave me a pile of money. And I bought uh, nine ice companies in about 16 months around the Midwest. And we became, I believe, the fourth largest ice company in the United States. Um, and then we got approached after maybe 18 months of doing this by the largest ice company in the U.S., and we got in negotiations with them, which didn't uh, go anywhere, but the third largest company was a company called Home City Ice out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And they were nervous that we would sell out to the big company, so they wanted to buy us, and we eventually sold to them uh, for the equivalent of about 20 years of profits. So it was a very short board meeting, uh, and I found myself, uh, and in, 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 uh, in that time of working at Polar Ice, I also settled my lawsuit with my former partners okay. and got some money. Uh, I spent a Spent $125,000 in legal bills, but I did get a nice settlement out of the deal. Uh, my stock was probably worth two or three million, and I didn't get that, but I got a nice settlement. I was able to put that behind me, and then um, the Polar Ice deal was a really, really nice deal for everybody. Uh, made some money there, took another year off, and an old client of mine at Ernst & Young, who I'd, I'd served on his board for free for five years to help him grow, which is something that uh, I never thought would pay off. I was just doing it to help a friend. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, now that you're free, I need a CFO. And I said, no, no, I'm, I don't really want to work a 60 or 70 hour week anymore. He, so I said, um, I, I'll work five hours a day, 25 hours a week. Uh, I want a percentage of your company. I want a country club membership. Um, 
That's the important. That's the most important thing about it, right there. Yeah, and I figured there's no way. I figured there's no way he would accept. Yeah, you want me bad enough? He said, "Oh, we'll we'll do it." (laughs) The only stipulation was he wanted me there every day. I couldn't just work three days a week, Mm -hmm. so I worked eight thirty to two as a part-time CFO, and uh, it was a a corporate high-tech wellness company called Sumex. And I'm not a high-tech guy. I wasn't a trucking guy or whatever. But uh, we grew that uh, a little bit, and then the recession hit for three years, 02 to 05. And then the recession ended, a lot of our competitors were gone and did not survive. And the whole idea of corporate wellness just got really, really hot. Uh, insurance companies started to want to buy us out, Nationwide, Anthem, those kind of places, mm-hmm. Aetna, Cigna. And so um, we really weren't ready to sell, but I hired an investment banker out of Texas, and we sold that company in 2006 uh, to WebMD for a lot of money. And so I've, uh, I've been retired since then, and I wandered into Butler a year later, and I've been there now 11 years. It's That's fantastic. Awesome. Um, in your years off, you said you would you sold, took a year off. What were you doing in that, that year off time? Were you still kind of working, but not really working, the working, or family time? My, or? Uh, my neighbors call me the king of sabbaticals, but <laughs> my, my first sabbatical, uh, I had been fired, which is a pretty traumatic thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been an honors graduate in law school and all this kind of stuff, and all of a sudden here I'm, I'm fired, and, and, and I'm embroiled in a legal controversy, so I had to spend mm-hmm. some time with my lawyers, yeah. and um, it took me a few weeks just to get out of the funk, if you've ever yeah. been fired. Um, I had I met with another old client of mine. Uh, Ernst Young had great clients, and, I, and a lot of them were still in my network. And so he, he had lunch with me, and he said, "That's getting fired is the best thing that ever happened to you." <laughs> and I couldn't see that at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought he was crazy. But looking back on it, if I hadn't gotten fired from that silly trucking company, there's no way I meet John Ackerman. There's no way I meet right. uh, the Sumex opportunity, and there's no way I'm sitting here today. Yeah. So uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But it's a it's a real humbling experience, and it 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 causes a reaction in your gut that is unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Or after this feeling of failure, and you're just shocked, and, mm-hmm. and you're really depressed. And it took several probably several months to get out of that. Yeah. And then it took about another nine months to find the right opportunity because I didn't yeah. just want to rush into something. And I and I knew I was going to get a settlement, so I, I knew I was going to end up okay. Right. Um, so I I was I turned down five or six jobs before I took the one with um, the, the ice job. So um, this, then after I sold the ice company, I had more money in my pocket. I had financial freedom at that mm-hmm. point, and then I was just a matter of figuring out what to do. And when my friend offered me the job, it was I I played golf for about a year and got that out of my system playing every single day. <laughs> thought I'd be a scratch golfer if I could play every day and it didn't, <laughs> didn't happen. I actually got worse. What's uh, the lowest your handicap's been? Uh, well, I played in high school. I was probably a four. Okay. Three or four. Hitting uh, below five playing. is really, really good. Um, but now I'm about a 13. Okay. So nice. It's okay. But yeah. I just play the fact that you're out there, man, that's all. That's Tim, you're going to see Tiger Woods tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah. We were that's talking awesome. about that's it. Awesome. I was at the Masters this April. It's the best sporting event uh, on the yeah. planet. I've been there four times. If you ever get a chance to go to the Masters, do whatever it takes to get down there. It is <laughs> any, cool. any sports fan. Like, definitely regardless of whether go, you play like, golf or not. It is, yeah. it is the best spectator experience I've ever had. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so getting out of that funk, because um, – we were talking earlier that a lot of people are just kind of stuck. Yes. Maybe whether it's funk, they don't like their current job, they don't know what to do next, they don't even know where to start. So what did that kind of look like starting to just progress out of that where it's like, okay, this happened. Like you said, you had some gut changes. What kind of 
mental shifts or awareness things? Was it like, okay, this is how it is and this is how I have to look at it and this is what I need to do next? I went to my network and just started going to lunch with people. Okay. Mm-hmm. I tried to at least go two or three days a week for breakfast or lunch and meet you know, a former client or a friend of mine to just pick their brain. And I would ask people, what do you think I should do next? Or I'm thinking about consulting or I'm thinking about doing this and and just talking to people mm. it gets you out on the on the radar yeah and that's how you get referrals okay. none of my jobs were listed in any kind of you know they didn't have websites back then but there were no LinkedIn imagine that. CFO jobs yeah. CFO jobs are not listed anywhere they're all word of mouth yeah it's all gotcha. hey you know one was through a stockbroker through you know it's all private high-level exec searches and you got to get out there yeah and yeah. so I, I committed to getting out there and I, I was really amazed by people that helped me that I didn't think hardly knew me. Mm. And the people that knew me really well, some of my best friends I thought would go to bat for me, they just they didn't because they just didn't have anything for me. The, pe- the jobs and the, the hot leads that I got came from sources I would have never expected. Mm-hmm. So you just have to keep broadening that network and trust that somebody somewhere is going to click and say, hey, you need a guy? I know a guy. And that's how it happens. Yeah. It's all networking. So that's what I, that's what I did to kind of get back in the game was use my network. And I was very fortunate at Ernst & Young, I had a hundred companies I worked for. Mm-hmm. So I had a hundred CFOs in my Rolodex and I would just call them up and say, hey, you know, would you know anything, you know anybody, here's what, I, here's what I'd like to do. Yeah. And I always knew in the back of my mind I could go be a CPA. So I had that, you know, if I really needed to support my family, I could go work as a CPA. Mm-hmm. And so that was very comforting to know. I, had, I was an entrepreneur, but I had a backup plan I never really wanted to practice law. I could have done that too, but I, was, I had practice as a CPA and I know I could do it again. So I had a safety net and mentally that's nice to have, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're out taking risks to know that all the way through my career for 20 years, I knew that if this company fails, I can always go hang up my shingle and be a CPA. Yeah. Um, so I had a backup plan in my mind that helped me sure. go mm-hmm. through that. Yeah, kind of offset that risk. That's good. But I didn't really think of it as risk. I mean, people, I look back at my career and it was pretty crazy. But when I was doing it, I never thought it was all that risky. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, you don't take time to appreciate, wow, I'm a lawyer with 12 years experience and I'm putting it all into go, to go work at an ice company at 21st and Martin yeah. Luther King Drive. Uh, <laughs> and none of my peers, my peers thought I was crazy, sure. but it didn't, it never really dawned on me. I didn't really assess the risk and it didn't factor in. I just kept going forward. And afterwards I look at it and go, holy smokes, that was pretty crazy. Uh-huh. But at the time you don't, I never looked at it that way. Right. And what do you think made you so successful at, at the ice company? Like why was the, why did the opportunity look attractive to you? And what do you think was the difference? And obviously, cause that venture turned out really well for you. The like, ice business was a pretty much an unregulated monopoly okay. uh, where you had virtually no competition. If you go into your grocery store, there's only one yeah. uh, ice freezer. So we had the dominant market share in Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, and half of Michigan. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, just a matter of buying out some of the smaller yeah. players in the small towns and, and working on our hub and spoke distribution and manufacturing systems, which I knew how to build all that infrastructure. So uh, we had a monopoly mm-hmm. and ice, uh, packaged ice might be one of the most profitable legal businesses I've ever seen mm-hmm. uh, in that the water was free or close to free. The bag yeah. was a nickel and you're wholesaling, you got 10 cents for delivery and you're yeah. wholesaling it for a dollar. So you got 85, 90% profit margin. Jeez. Now it's seasonal, it's highly seasonal, yeah. um, pretty much Memorial Day to Labor Day, but it's highly profitable, yeah. it's insanely profitable. 
So it has, um, if you do it on a scale that we did, I mean, we're doing 100 million bags of ice. So, I mean, you got you to gotta have the infrastructure. Yeah. But we had such a barrier to entry because no one could, you know, build a factory and, and produce 100 million bags of ice to compete against it. So we had a monopoly. Whereas if you go into bottled water, there's 12 different bottled water right. companies on the shelf. Uh -huh. We're the only ice game in town and 10,000 merchandisers. So, and we own 10,000 merchandisers. So we had millions of assets, of hard assets. So the barrier to entry was huge. And that's what attracted us to it. It was, it's, it was perfect for a roll-up opportunity because we knew that there wasn't going to be any competition. Gotcha. So when, when it was so seasonal, did you look into getting into warmer client, climates in the off-season, if you will? Not really. Uh, the, we had Kentucky, which stays warm in Kentucky in November, okay. a little longer. Yeah. But we had Michigan, which is pretty much over by Labor Day. Right. So we would spend the winter, we hired, I think out of 450 employees, we had 325 were seasonal. A lot of college students driving for us in the summer. Gotcha. And so we, our, our permanent labor force was pretty small. Okay. And we would spend the winters doing all of our maintenance and we'd repair every machine. You tear it down, build it back up. We do the maintenance on the trucks because you can't have any downtime for those 90 days that you're running. Yeah. Hours can cost you tens of thousands of dollars in downtime. So we would build our, and our ice making machinery is, is pretty sophisticated, uh, these 50 ton ice makers. And so you have to rebuild those and put all new augers in them and, you know, make sure that you're not going to have any downtime the next year. So we would spend, and frankly, we took a lot of time off in the winter too, but yeah. um, it was more preparing for the season. You have a little bit of business, you know, people buy ice at New Year's Eve and things like that, right. but it's not much. It's maybe, yeah. you know, 10%. Yeah, for those six months and 90% for four months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you like that industry because in the winter times you could just go down south and play golf when things, things weren't as busy. <laughs> we did travel a little bit. I, Work I, on the I, handicap. Yeah. I had gone to conventions before, but they have an ice convention, which is oh, really? unlike anything I've ever been to. There was oh. virtually no content. It was pretty much a booze and golf fest. Uh, <laughs> I was so. about to ask what an ice convention is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Like, Where was it, it at? Was, uh, <laughs> it was open bar. It was down at Disney World. Okay. And, uh, I it keeps going. getting better the more we get into I the ice convention. I've been legal and accounting <laughs> seminars for years. I'm like, well, where's the seminar? And they're like, well, no, we just get in this hall and we get drunk and they have the vendors give us all yeah. this free food and they take us out golfing. I'm like, cool. That's so awesome. Was, I love uh, the ice industry. <laughs> yeah, it was a different kind of convention than what I was used to, but it was okay. a lot of fun. That's awesome. And okay, so yeah, so you had very successful career in, the, in that. And tell us a little bit about, I guess, your decision to, to go teach at Butler and kind of what, what motivated you to go do that. Well, when I was a senior in college, they had a, a pioneer program at the Cranert School of Business at Purdue where they let seniors be TAs. So okay. I taught an economics class. Um, intro to economics class okay. as a TA and I really enjoyed it it was it was something in the back of my mind I thought you know someday I'd like to go back and teach at the college level but I didn't want to mess with the, the academic career path and tenure and all that stuff so um, it was just a seed that was planted and so 20 years later when I had cashed out of my last deal I walked into Butler and said hey can I teach anything I'll teach accounting or econ or, mm -hmm. or whatever you have and they had just gotten a Lilly grant um, for $23 million, I think. And they, they come up with a new mission for the school of real life, real business. And they were looking for a couple people like me to do experiential learning classes. Mm -hmm. And I immediately asked them, well, what's that? I never had such a thing in my <laughs> career. And they explained what they had in mind um, for teaching experiential learning through having students run businesses and write business plans and make pitches. I'm like, wow, that's what I do. I can do that. 
And so that's how we started. I was one of the, the first people they hired for that program, and I think I'm the only remaining person um, from those days. But um, it was a lot of fun to create that program for, mm-hmm. for both our first year and second year program, FBE and RBE at Butler, and, and really get students involved in, in running companies. And uh, I have found that it's the most enjoyable job I've ever had. Uh, probably the lowest paying job I've ever had, but it's also the most enjoyable job I've yeah. ever had. And yeah, I get more from it than I than I certainly put in. It's been terrific. Right. Like, and you're think about the amount of people you're impacting too, because that 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 class, that real business experience class, and the freshman one too. Kids will come into Butler under the program that that you're a part of, and they'll get experience that people at other like business schools don't really get until like maybe their senior year, if at all, like if they're at doing, all. there's yeah. nobody in the country that's doing what Butler's doing in terms of the sophomore class where students yeah. run companies and we're the only school in the country that allows the students to keep the profits. So there's nobody doing what we're doing over mm-hmm. there. And it is a lot of fun to see the, the, the development of the freshmen uh, that come in is pretty much knuckleheads. And, and they I leave. was a knucklehead. Uh, oh, <laughs> who's not? Yeah, You're full so, of shit if you aren't. <laughs> that's what I really get. I, the freshmen are the hardest group mm-hmm. to teach, but you get the most reward because they develop so much. I mean, you're not even the same person in November and December than you are in August. Mm-hmm. And so it's really fun to see that development. And then I, I really enjoy the upper-level classes, too. And now I teach entrepreneurial finance and business law. And I get to see the same students again as juniors and seniors. And it's just, you're not even the same people. It's just, it, we can have adult conversations. It's so much fun that um, that's a big reward. And now that I've been there 11 years, I'm getting contacted on a pretty regular basis by guys like you mm-hmm. to come meet and talk about their careers and maybe mm-hmm. talk about a business opportunity. Uh, in fact, I'm having a lunch next Tuesday with somebody. And I really enjoy that. I'm getting to see people that are now 27, 28, 29 years old making these career moves. And uh, it's really fun to be a part of that in a very small way. Yeah. Yeah. You had an impact on that. And I took the class, the real business experience class. Slayer, you took it too, right? Yeah, I was in that, yeah. And we, we have Butler people that are listening to this right now, but for the people that aren't really familiar with the class, kind of explain like in brief summary how that goes down, that class, the real business experience. The real business experience class is a sophomore level class where the students come in and they come up, their first assignment is to come up with three business ideas. They have to be able to be capitalized for under $5,000 and they have to be legal and appropriate. So Mm -hmm. the students come up with their own ideas. We narrow it down to four ideas. There's four teams in a room, and the students pick their own teams. Uh, They vote with their feet. They form their own businesses. We loan them. Then they apply for a loan. We loan them up to $5,000. They they order some inventory. They do a a proof of concept. We give them maybe $500 to do a trial run. They order some inventory, and they learn about marketing. They learn about pricing. They learn about uh, working with vendors. They do some accounting. Uh, sometimes money ends up missing, uh, inventory ends up missing in dorm rooms, fraternity houses. And so they, it, it's only $500, <laughs> so it's not the end of the world, but they learn right. yeah. that, gosh, business is a lot harder than what they think. And they have to account for it. And at the end uh, of that initial semester, they, they make a pitch for their full loan up to $5,000 to a, an outside lending panel. We bring in people from the community to serve as panelists, and they get to vote. It's, uh, we have no say in it as professors. And the students get approved or denied for their loan, and then they come back the next semester and run the business for profit. Uh, and it's just a, a nice way to get students at an early age uh, really hands-on experience with actual marketing of their own product, actual accounting, making presentations, writing a business plan, that kind of thing. So it's, uh, there, it's more of an individual development class 
that uses this business idea as a vehicle to take an individual development journey so you can become a better speaker, a better writer, uh, and learn about business. Yeah. And that class is the furthest thing away from your typical read a textbook, read chapter one, go to the next one type of class. Well, how like, many times I told you, I can't learn from a book. Like yeah. I can't read a textbook and learn econ or math or anything like that. do it. Entrepreneurial finance. Like it's just like when I know someone who's actually done it is able to teach like this is how it really works. Like yeah. put the book down. This is what goes down. We have That's a little bit I of I content learned. and teamwork and some leadership sure, and things sure. like that. But yeah. otherwise uh, the content is the experience. And so you go through the experience and usually students find out that business is a little harder than what they thought. <laughs> and so their, their hockey stick financial forecasts don't come to fruition. And that's exactly what we want them to learn. We want students to learn that business is pretty hard yeah. and you got to have your ducks in a row and you really know what, you know, you got to have a plan and they see the value in planning and they see the value in test marketing and things like that and, and really, really honing in on your target market. And so they learn those basic principles and even inventory management. If you lose some inventory or whatever, I guarantee you that 10 or 20 years down the road, you're never gonna make that same mistake again yeah. when you're dealing with millions of dollars with inventory in a, in a big company. So those little lessons they learn, I think, are, are carrying forward and, and really valuable. Mm -hmm. If you had like, so when you were going through your businesses and growing and selling, and because people think entrepreneurship is like overnight success. It's like, oh, the private jet, <laughs> you look on Instagram, like blah, blah, blah. Um, if there are one or two th major things where you're like, wow, this is something I never would have learned unless I went through it or like the hard part of it, the back end that people don't see, um, you know, whether it's time away from family or something else where it's like, whoa, that smacked me in the face. This is real life, real business. Yeah. The time commitment is, is extreme, but I knew that mm -hmm. and I had worked tax busy seasons. So sure. I'd, I'd worked really long weeks for, you know, for parts so that didn't bother me that much you have to realize what you don't know when you go into business. And even though I took a CFO job and I thought I knew business, I didn't really know a lot about a lot of subjects. Mm -hmm. And you have to swallow your ego and your pride and use your network and, and, and understand what you don't know and, and know when to seek help. And there is not a help internally because you're usually the, you know, I was the highest educated guy there. I had no peers, but I knew I had a Rolodex full of old clients and people that were CFOs in places and so, I remember one day my insurance company said, uh, insurance guy came in and said, hey, for medical insurance, do you want to be partially self-insured? I had no idea. What, it was like a foreign language to me. I had no idea what self-insured medical coverage was. So I just kind of put him on hold and said, I'll get back to you on that. And I went to lunch with a friend of mine and said, well, you know, what do you do for medical insurance? What's this partial sell? And I ended up saving a, a half a million dollars. But I had to learn about it. So you have to, you know, say, I don't know anything about that. Teach me and rely on people to give you good advice, network. Um, and, and I would say I didn't get my first CFO job till I was 34. You don't have to rush into this. And I retired at 46. So I was only in the game for 12 years and, and did quite well. But you have to uh, understand your limitations. And I see that with some young people. They don't, they don't realize what they don't know and they're afraid to ask for help. Never be afraid to ask for help because people will help you. I was amazed at CEOs and CFOs of um, publicly held companies that used to be clients of mine would meet me and help me and, uh, with no expectation of a return. And I've done that now for, for the last you know 10 years or so. I help sure. people all the time. I, never, I don't get asked to be paid. Mm -hmm. And people will do that for you. And yeah. so there is an opportunity if you ask people. I've, I've really never been turned down for when I ask someone for advice. And you just have to understand and know when to ask for it. Mm -hmm. And know what you're getting into. Yeah. And I feel like that's the beauty of, of a network. Like that's how a network works. Like 
you give, you give, you give, like you help other people and then someone's going to help you along the way. Like that's, that's just the way it is. It's always a two way thing. You got to play your role as a teacher, but you also have to know when it's your time to learn something you don't know about. And it sounds like you definitely, oh, I'm still learning. I still learn yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing what, what you might get when you just ask. Everyone's yeah. afraid of the ask. Mm-hmm. It's like people who have like quote unquote made it. Are, so why do you think that is? Do they not want to appear dumb? I and mean, why, why, why do younger people not want to ask I, people for help? Aside from the simple fear of it, I, I think they're it's, comfortable. It, it, yeah, it's, it's hard. And it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to do to reach out to someone that you don't really know that well. That's not your best friend of, and saying, Hey, like, can I meet you? Like, and it's a one-on-one one-on-one is always a lot scarier than anything else. So I think those things, and it's just, you either really want it or you don't like, that's the other part of it. Like you want to work or you want to be entitled to it. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, the people who play at the top are the askers. Like they ask the question right. yeah. and if they get told no, they ask someone else. They're one more no closer to that next. Yes. But a lot of people now it's like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll make it. It's like, well, doing what? Like, because people are the answer. Like, without people, you have nothing. Oh, there's no question. You I, have nothing. I, I had a team of people that I took with me when I got new jobs. I would have a team of three or four people that came with me. Okay. And so um, I had a controller. I had I had people that, that knew me and knew my style. So when I hit hit the ground, we because you, you can't grow a company, you know, three, four, five hundred percent by yourself. Right. So you have to have a team in place. Everything I did was it was a result of a team, and I treated those people well, and everybody mm-hmm. had fun, and we you know we got along, but. And there, it definitely is a team aspect to it. No, no question about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just the fear and motivation are the two, two killers with that. And it's like, like we we asked you to be here, and here we are. There's a lot of practical and things about business that aren't on Google or YouTube. <laughs> so um, you have to get out and yeah. and ask people exactly what happens and what you do. And you know, mm-hmm. because I've, I never read a business book uh, until I started working at Butler, mm-hmm. and they started handing me all these books. And so I, now I look at them, I, I chuckle at some of them and I get good information out of some, but by and large, um, a lot of it's common sense and a lot of it doesn't relate to me cause it's Silicon Valley or whatever, you know, great that you're, we're Apple or whatever. But, um, a lot of stuff I learned was just through experience and by making mistakes. And I think I've made pretty much every mistake you can make in business, but hopefully I haven't made a lot of them more than once. And so you learn and you move on and you get better at it. And when I first started as a CFO, I didn't know much of anything. And when I ended up uh, being 12 years as a CFO, I was pretty darn good at it at the end. Mm-hmm. But you, you just have to know that and, and spend some time. I would encourage young people to spend time working for other people that mm-hmm. are successful and growing. And so you don't, you know, if, if something bad happens, it's their money, not yours. Yeah. And if something great happens, um, they usually will, you know, reward you in some fashion and you'll just get a taste of it and then you can go off and do it on your own. I've probably been to as many dinners at St. Elmo's as anybody that you know because <laughs> uh, I did dozens and dozens of mergers and acquisitions where people are always celebrating deals but I never got any of the money but it was really neat to be in that arena okay. and, it pl- and, and I said well I got to be one of these clients now Yeah. and that's what I went out and did and I, I, I unabashedly admit that, that I'm a capitalist and I was motivated by financial freedom and it's not always a good thing, but I had a, I always had, I had a life plan and I strongly encourage people to have a plan, you know, go out 20 years and say, where do you see yourself? Mm-hmm. And then work backwards. That's what I do with my MBA students that I, that I coach. We go out 20 years and say, okay, when you're in your mid forties, early fifties, 
where do you want to be and then work backwards and, and get the education and the network and the career changes that you need to get you in that position. Mm-hmm. And there's no right answer. It's just what's right for you in 20 years. Where do you want to be in 20 years? And it doesn't happen unless you have a plan. And I had a plan. It didn't work out exactly the way I thought by sure. getting fired in this, that, and the other. But I kind of knew that I wanted to go do my own thing. Yeah. And I did it in kind of a crazy way, but I did have an, a, a plan. And, that's, and I also wanted to maybe teach college at the end. Mm-hmm. So I had a life plan that I think is very valuable to just wander through life going, what do I do? What do I do? Think about it and be flexible, yeah. but have a goal, whatever that goal is, and work toward it. Yeah, like ha- you sort of saying like have an end in mind, have some type of idea, and there may not be one specific path to get there because things happen. Right. So yeah. you, you have the direction, then the detours happen along the way. Yeah, but you like, still have your main direction. It's like, all right, that happened. Reverse engineer. We're engin- still going, yeah. Reverse yeah, reverse engineer. engineer and ask what you need to do today. Oh, that's, that's genius. That's yeah. so money. Go hard right now and the next day, then worrying about everything down the road because you're going to have to navigate. Yeah, yeah you, gotta get, you don't get caught up in the fires of the day. You always have to I – would, I would deal with the issues of the day, but I would also block out at least half my day to look forward okay. and mm-hmm. work on bigger picture things because mm-hmm. you can get caught up all day, every day, responding to emails and phone calls and you know get involved. But you del- I learned to delegate that stuff mm-hmm. and focus on what they were paying me for. They're not paying me six figures to return emails. They're paying me to lead the company forward and look at you know acquisition opportunities and look at growth yeah. strategies and things like that. So I always try to take at least half my day. Mm. If you had a meeting, it was going to last no more than an hour because I hate meetings. And I, I never got caught up. I tried not to get caught up in the fires of the day. And I met so many people that just, gosh, I never get time to even look at the business plan because I'm, I'm returning emails all day. Yeah, yeah. You got to hire somebody and delegate that. It's a good point. And, and, and delegate. And I, be, I, I, I did I learned that the hard way because I, my first CFO job, I didn't delegate and I worked way too many hours. And now I've gone full circle where I'm a master delegator and my kids uh, used to get mad at me because I was always delegating things to them and they mm-hmm. thought I was lazy. And I said, no, I'm not lazy. I'm just a very good delegator. <laughs> <laughs> you know and how to so, lead people. So I've become a master delegator yeah. as I've gotten older and uh, work, work smarter, not harder kind of thing. Yeah. But you really have to do that because you ha- if you're getting paid to be a, or you're going to be an entrepreneur leading a business, you've got to focus on running that business and not get going forward and not get caught up in all the noise. You can hire people and, and they can deal with the noise. You've got you've to be the strategic visionary you know, mm-hmm. out there going forward. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you've seen a lot of issues with people not delegating. So how do you determine like, all right, this is mine, take care of the rest. Like say emails and things like that, do they only bring, just for example, like a really important one to you? Like, hey, you really need to look at this? Like, cause I think some people it's hard to delegate to like, it's almost, telling them what to do even it's, though that's what you're supposed to art. do it's very much an art and i and I, I sucked at it when i started and i've gotten better at it it's hard to delegate and not have the person feel like they've been dumped on yeah so you want to make it an opportunity for them and say here's what i want you to do i think you can learn something from this i've done this before i want you to do it uh, that kind of thing and uh but you get better at it as you go along there's no good sometimes you just have to say hey my plate's too full i need help uh, i know this is not glory work but I need, I need you to help me on this um, but I always try to keep a team mentality about it and, and give people credit when they do a good job mm-hmm. As, and I was never great at that but giving people praise helps say hey I really appreciate you came in on Saturday to help me with that Colin uh, it, it makes a big difference in my week going forward and you know and, and then financially you can reward people too but I found most people wanted the feedback and they wanted to do a good job if you worked for me you had to be a problem solver you couldn't just come to me and say, Jim, the copier's broken. 
you had to come to me and say, the copier's broken, our options are, we can repair it for this, we can buy a new one for that, I recommend X. And mm -hmm. I can just gently, I can look up and say, yep, I'm good with that, go. Okay. You can't just come to my office and say the copier broke. I don't oh. have time for that. I'm paying like you to think, and I, I would give you the authority to do your job, but I expected you to think and be a decision maker. And I had veto power, but I, so that's how my day would go. People okay. would come in to me and say, hey, we got an issue with, in Los Angeles, or our trucking company is this, this, and this. I think we should do X. I've already talked to three people. I've gotten, I think we should do X. Go. I don't have to sit there and go, gosh, I got a problem in Los Angeles. What do I do? Yeah. You get people trained with that mentality to tell them, I'm paying you to think. And usually they want to solve their own problems and not have me looking over their shoulder. Right. But that's a, that's a culture that you have mm -hmm. to build. And I really tried to do that everywhere I went, where if you work for me, you had to solve problems because I'm not there to solve your problems. That's awesome. That's a healthy company right there. Yeah. Yeah. If you have people like that that think Man. like that. That's a like lot have of the that's problem and the solution ready, even if that's not the solution you go yeah. with. You had something. Like yeah. the work was there. And, no and, time I always, and you're ready to go. The best seminar I ever went to was when I was at Ernst Young. They brought in these two Harvard guys. And it was a management seminar, management training seminar when they were promoting me to a manager level. And these guys took every problem for two hours you could throw at them and they said, It's your fault. Every single situation. If you're gonna be it's your fault. You hired the wrong person, you trained the wrong person, you didn't supervise them. Every single mistake in business is your fault. So that stuck with me. And when I got to run my own companies, every time someone would come into me with a problem, the first thing I'd say is, it's not your fault, it's my fault. Relax, we'll get through it, it's my fault. I didn't train you, I didn't support you, I didn't, you know, but it's my fault. Yeah. And, and that was my mentality. Mm. And that immediately lets people, the stress level goes down. They go, okay, I know I'm not gonna get you know, in trouble for this. So you have to have that mentality that everything that goes wrong in your business is your fault. Because certainly you're gonna take credit when things go great, right? Yeah. But when things go wrong, my mentality would be to jump in whatever the situation was and say, that's my fault. Well, I'll fix it, but it's my fault. Yeah. I get paid for stress and it's my responsibility. And, and that was my, and, and every time I had to lay somebody off, and I fired a bunch of people in my career, I usually feel people fire themselves, but when I'd fire somebody, I'd feel a sense of failures. I failed you uh, because mm -hmm. I didn't put you in the right position or I didn't, I didn't supervise you properly or I, or I hired you when I shouldn't have. That's my mistake. Uh, so every situation in business, if you're going to be a manager, is your responsibility. It's your fault. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that I never blamed people for something they did. I always took responsibility for yeah. it. I tried to. And, and the reality is, like, when you're running your own business, like, no one else is going to care as much about that business as you are. No question. And that's just, that's it too. So no question. there's always that part of it. It's like, well, it's not my business. Even if you work hard for that person, it's just still and not their And there are times business. when I had to overrule people and use veto power and say they want to go you know, do a direction. I have to say, no, when you get to own the company someday, you can do what you want, but mm -hmm. this, is, this is the way we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. I tried to do that rarely, but there were times when you have to say, hey, it's my, I'm the guy that's signing the loans. So this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I tried to give them as much autonomy as possible, but yet, so it was a, a democracy, but I had veto power. Yeah. And were they pretty receptive when that happened? Like when you help them understand why, or were there a few where it's, where it's like, <laughs> not always. Yeah, yeah. Well, human I'm sure. nature. I'm sure. Yeah. Human nature. Um, if you're a marketing person and you want to go to this really cool trade show in Vegas and it's ten thousand dollars, and I say no, <laughs> uh, you're not, I'm not making your day. And they did call me CF No for all a while. business in Vegas. CF No, that's <laughs> hilarious. I mean, well, when you're asking for Vegas, like, what do you expect? Like, everyone knows, like, location-wise, let's start there. Yeah. But we'd say, and so I learned early on in managing money in business that 
if people just knock on your door with a fire, you're, you're going to say yes, and you're going to be out of money real quick. So I would have an annual meeting with everybody in the company that had any kind of responsibility and I'd say, bring me your wish list of what you want next year. New people, new equipment, whatever it is, bring your I want list. And we would all sit in a room and we would agree that here's the 10 or 12 things we want to fund next year. And here's the priority number one is new computers, priority number two is a new assistant, whatever. And we would have those things ranked on a whiteboard. So every time I got an extra $50,000, I would just send an email out saying item number one is being covered. We didn't have to meet oh, and put awesome. out the, you know, we didn't have to fight over it. Everybody knew what was next. Yeah. And if I didn't make any money, I couldn't afford any of it. But everybody knew. I didn't have this every week. Oh, we, something, we need to do this and we need to do this. I, you only get one shot a year and everybody puts their I want list in there and you manage off of that. And that worked out really well. It stopped the, the, the weekly crises of banging on my door asking for $10,000 um, because they knew that's not the way I worked. Mm-hmm. You had to get in the pipeline and then you know, allocate money as it became available. Yeah. It's so genius having a prioritization like that. Where and it's the like whole people group bought know. in on it. They bought yeah. in on it. We yeah. They respected it. They respected we didn't the adjourn decisions. the meeting until yeah. everybody agreed this is number one, this is number two. And they would argue. I mean, it would take all day a lot sure. of times. But we would leave going, here's our, here's our priority list, and this is what we're going to do. The next, yeah. you know, ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars yeah. is what we're going to spend it on. Yeah. And everybody would agree. Yeah. No questions asked after that meeting is decided. Yeah, you know, sometimes things change, but it, at least it was a, there was a, framework and they knew yeah. that this is what we had to do to get expenditures yeah. approved they knew the strategy going forward and there's yeah. no you know politics and everybody trying to outmaneuver somebody everybody knew that it was going to happen in that meeting mm-hmm. worked really well yeah uh what so kind of back to the teaching i'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on because education gets bashed a lot now i feel sure. like for what this reason that reason I'm kind of curious what your thoughts. I know you love, you want to give back and things like that. So I'm interested in what you think of education as a whole in general and direction it's going. I'm concerned about the cost. Uh, Butler tuition has doubled, uh, more than doubled since I've been there in in 11 years. Wow. And when I see what Mitch Daniels is doing at Purdue by freezing tuition to where it's now less than half of what Butler is, I see that as a real, real issue. Uh, and so I'm concerned for higher education, especially because that's really where I'm at, that it's going to become so expensive that at some point it's going to go off the cliff. Um, Butler is now $50,000 or whatever. And so at some point when it gets to be sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year, are people going to still come? I don't know. And I'll be gone by then, so I don't stress too much about it. But I do worry about the longevity of higher education. I think something has to change, and I love what Mitch Daniels is doing with his uh, frozen tuition up there. And um, I think higher education, we just keep raising our rates every year because our peer schools do. And to me, that's just um, that's going to be a real problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I worry about it. But uh, overall, I think there is still value there. You're investing in yourself in education, and I firmly believe in graduate school, some type of graduate school, if you can stomach slash afford it. I think that's the best investment I made was go to graduate school, go to law school. And so I still believe in education, but I worry about um, the cost of it these days. Yeah. And I guess besides, I mean, you network with people, you talk with people, you get lunch with people. What are some other ways, I guess, you yourself kind of educate yourself, self-educate yourself? I've been involved with uh, charity groups in town. I've been involved with Sertoma and Rotary Clubs, and they bring in speakers and things. And you mm-hmm. listen to speakers, and you go, oh, I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah. And so I love, uh, and Butler has a tremendous speaker series. There'll be 
I'll go to five or six lectures a year at Butler uh, for various authors and nationally prominent people that will come in. Even if I disagree with them vehemently politically or whatever, I go listen to them. And I always learn something. Mm-hmm. I've, never, I've never felt as if it was a waste of my time. So if you avail yourself, and it's all, there's a lot of stuff that's free out there, free lectures, um, podcasts, uh, things like this, mm-hmm. that you can learn from. And, and I, I really um, enjoy those kind of things. I never stop learning. And um, I, I would go outside of the traditional, you know, go find nonprofits. You can serve on a board, uh, be involved in some of the civic groups that are doing some really cool things. And you meet people that way. I've met a lot of people through my Sertoma Club um, downtown that were in all walks of life. Uh, I think I was the youngest guy in the Sertoma Club for a number of years. And it was just great to go and hear the old guys tell these stories at lunch uh, every Wednesday. And it, it was uh, a great learning experience. And a number of them be- became, you know, peers, uh, networking uh, connections of mine that I consulted with as I, I made various moves in my career. So. Um, there are things you can do outside of your job that don't take a lot of time that can give you some real value, um, mm-hmm. community service kind of things. Just got to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. You do. And you look, to, and look for those opportunities. You have yeah. to work at it. And mm-hmm. that's, I made a commitment to, to go to at least one lunch a week, even since I've been retired. And I really try to work at it because you have to call people up yeah. and say, let's go to lunch, Tim, mm-hmm. because they're not going to sit there and call you. Uh, yeah. You have to be committed to work. And I, and I just enjoy, and now we're, my lunches are less serious. Obviously we're talking about our grandkids and our, you know, our golf sure. games and things like we're going on vacation and mm-hmm. things like that. But it's still, um, I, I, I never feel as though it's a waste of time. I'm still networking with people. Yeah. Um, even though I'm probably never going to go to work again, uh, mm-hmm. I still enjoy hearing about what's going on. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, is there any other project or business or something that you have your sights set on or kind of working on at all, or you just kind of living and teaching and not really riding the wave? I just uh, I manage my investments. I work on my, I, I am an investor these days primarily, mm-hmm. and so I watch that pretty carefully, mm-hmm. and so try to make sure that uh, my money is where it needs to be, and trying to make sure I don't have to work anymore. Um, so that takes it takes time to be an investor. Mm-hmm. Sure. You have to watch. Um, what, what's going on and I do follow the markets and things try to be somewhat strategic and um, but overall no I've I've committed to um, simplifying life and my, my investment portfolio is actually quite simple it used to be much more complex but I've I've really gotten simple and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next phase uh, of more full retirement and uh, spending more time in warmer climates and and giving back in a different way mm-hmm. uh, through volunteering and maybe some some bequests and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, that's where I'm planning now. I'm trying to figure out what the next phase is for for me and my wife and I are talking about those things right now. So it's it's a it's a nice exciting time. yeah, yeah. It is. it's that's always awesome. always yeah. something new that's yeah awesome. Get that handicap maybe to single digits. Single <laughs> I don't digits. Know that's ever Who knows? Happen. You, you got to keep twisting that knife on them. Keep moving the, moving the tees up. But yeah. It's all right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, and I guess before I wrap up, just yeah. one more question. Um, for someone that's going into the entrepreneurial route, I guess what are the what are some of the main important characteristics you think someone needs to have? I guess to to go against that and go into things like that. Make sure you know what you're getting into. Uh, have a detailed business plan. Make sure you have your capital lined up. I w- again, as I said before, practice by working for somebody else first mm-hmm. so you can make mistakes on, on their uh, dime. Mm-hmm. And get a team that buys in and believes in what you're doing. Do that first. 
the idea is probably 1% of the way to success, just getting the idea. You've got to have infrastructure and commitment, and then you just have to go and don't look back. Mm-hmm. Once I made a move, I never looked back, uh, and you got to be committed to it, and you got to have the passion because that passion will then be instilled in your other people. And um, but, but, but again, realize what you don't know, use your network, be smart, but be aggressive. If you're not growing, then you're not an entrepreneur. There's a lot of small business people out there that are not entrepreneurs. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to think growth, and you probably have to think exit Mm -hmm. because that's really what you're doing. Yeah. And uh, those two things are it's a different mentality, and and you can't get too attached because you're probably going to have an exit. At least you should be thinking of an exit. And so you're looking to grow, exit, and move on to the next thing. And it's just a um, an adrenaline rush. It's a great game when you're in it, but it is not easy understand you're going to have good days and bad days it is two steps forwards one step backwards I had a lot of backward days mm-hmm. and a lot of days when I, people were calling me for money and i didn't have any and so you know it was, it was a real struggle to manage cash flow when you're growing a company fast so it's not all you know sunshine and rainbows but if you believe in yourself i'm living proof that a simple guy from lawrence can actually do okay and uh, you guys are much more educated and have great opportunities these days that didn't even exist when I was around. Mm-hmm. So um, I would love to be a young person again and have this, uh, this level of opportunity and capital private equity out there. But you do have to you know, take those risks somewhat strategically. And um, uh, I don't know. I'm rambling. Yeah, no. no, it's all right. I mean, no, yeah, that's we, good. We always we say a lot, uh, if you can't gamble on yourself and – believe in what your own you have ability to bet on is. yourself i definitely bet on myself then, more yeah. than once if you can't do that then you have to be willing to, you have to be willing to risk it and say if this doesn't work yeah. out and i always had that if i didn't work out i can go practice as a cpa mm-hmm. but it might not work out yeah yeah um, i did enough bankruptcy work in Ernst and young that i knew the bankruptcy pitfalls and that was very helpful but um that's a possibility yeah yeah, yeah. well jim this has been awesome we really appreciate you, your time especially coming in on the weekend and um I've learned a lot. Yeah, dude. I I'm sure after after a lot. talking to Jim, one thing I took from this is I'm gonna go talk to other people now who are doing this, mm-hmm. who are podcasting, yeah. and I'm gonna learn from them and use it to ours based on what I mean. That's good advice, man. We're and a lot of people are gonna get some good stuff from this. And again, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really of enjoyed. course. Thank you, listeners. Uh, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, and until next time, uh, we'll talk to you soon. See ya.